0: Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garifoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today in the podcast, we are talking with one of the nation's leading progressive voices, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Seattle. She is all over the place right now. She's writing the new Medicare for All bill in the House that's coming out. She's on the leading edge of immigration. She's the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. So that means all of the folks running for president are coming to kiss the ring. Talking progressive politics next on It's All Political. Congresswoman Jayapal, welcome to It's All Political. And welcome to San Francisco. Thank you. It's so great to be with you. So, uh, so much to talk about right now. There's a lot of stuff going on and you are in the middle of a lot of different things. And I want to start with you as you're uh, one of the founders of the Medicare for All caucus in the yes. House, correct? And so you're helping to write the Medicare for All bill correct. That, that will come out of the House. Um, so let's talk about health care for a little bit. I mean, we're, what, a month into the presidential race, and we're having a conversation about single-payer health care. Three years ago at this time, Bernie Sanders, was uh, he was like political uranium for talking about <laughs> it. You were uh, an endorser of his. But already there is pushback. Uh, Senator Sherrod Brown says that, uh, you know, and he's a liberal friend, and he says that Medicare for all is the goal, but it's unrealistic in this political climate. He wants to lower the Medicare age, and, and uh, Amy Klobuchar is saying sort of the same thing. Marcus Milicis from the Daily Coast says supporting Medicare for all is the price of admission to the Democratic race. What do you think? Do you think that is the, the price of admission to to get into the race or—
1: well, I think that it is one of the top issues, if not the top issue for Americans across this country. And there are 30 million Americans who are uninsured, 40 million, perhaps more, depending on which numbers you look at, that are underinsured. Uh, healthcare costs are 19 percent of GDP right now. It is absolutely unsustainable, unaffordable, and people are dying because they can't get health care. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty good thing to have be at the top of the list for what presidential candidates have to uh, have to be talking about. In terms of Medicare for all, you know, it's talked about like it's some crazy radical idea. But, of course, this is the system that every almost every industrialized country in the world has. The United States is so far behind and it is unaffordable, un. Uh, you know, uh, untenable that people would be dying because they can't get health care, or that people would be going to GoFundMe as their number one insurance plan for health care. Um, and it's not just people who are uninsured. Uh, I just got a, I get these emails all the time, but I got an email from a constituent in my district who's disabled. He's covered by employer health care. And he is still paying $35,000 a year for premiums, deductibles, and and co-pays. So this is not a system... Uh, this is a system that is is frankly uh, benefits the pharmaceutical companies who are making 125 billion dollars in profit. It benefits the insurance companies who are making way too much money right. on just providing insurance that fr- is getting less and less in terms of what it actually provides. But is it and a deal? It is it
0: a deal breaker if someone if a 2020 candidate does not support it? You know, if for, from you from a, pros- I, a progressive I, viewpoint, I think
1: it's. I think it would be. Um, I think it would be very difficult for a 2020 presidential candidate to not support Medicare for all and to not support it in a way that is that is authentic about needing to get there. Of course, big ideas um, take time to to push along. Um, Some of the greatest things we've achieved in this country have been called absurd and ridiculous and outrageous at the time. Mm. But there were people that really pushed for it to make it happen. And so this idea that, well, it's a great idea, but it's radical, it's too unaffordable, it's too big. No, we went to space. We, you know, finally got rid of slavery. We finally, you know, got black folks and women the right to vote. Those things were crazy at the time. But, you know, if this is, if providing health care to every American is crazy, then call us crazy.
0: (laughs) What is the, uh, what about people, and Kamala Harris ran into this the other day, what about people who are are on their employer plan right now? I think uh, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation said that right now 58% of people are on their employers insurance. What if they like that insurance? What happens to them? What what can they do?
1: Well, you know, the Medicare for All bill that I'm that I'm going to mm-hmm. introduce in a couple of weeks says that you would keep you would still have your choice of doctors and hospitals. I mean, the plan continues to use the existing delivery system for healthcare delivery. Um, and so people would still have access to all of that. In fact, they would have more access because right now they can't go see, you know, different providers or different hospitals um, for certain services. Sometimes they don't even know it's cov- it's not covered until mm-hmm. they get there and, and have their treatment. Um, you know, in terms of... That kind of choice, it would still absolutely be there. What we're saying is, let's take out all the administrative costs. About twelve percent of all of all of the, you know, costs right now are administrative. Take out those administrative costs by streamlining the system. People don't have to think about copays and deductibles. We can move to a system of preventive care. I worked in public health for ten years before before this career, mm-hmm. and uh, the reality is, curative care is incredibly expensive. It's in- expensive in terms of dollars, but it's also expensive. In in terms of the cost of people dying or the people, you know, people not being able to uh, live healthy lives. Right. So if we can move everything, and and the Affordable Care Act started to do this, you know, I think it started to move the system so that it was dealing with preventive care, not curative care. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that, you know, people are going to be extremely happy with a system where. They can get the care that they
0: need when they need it. So, it's under the bill you're you're crafting. It wouldn't be an abrupt uh, abrupt change from like oh, all of a sudden, private insurers like you know a Kaiser or, or or what have you, Sutter Health would go away. It would be
1: a – it's a um, two-year transition in my bill. So the first year would be uh, really dealing with the administrative systems and lining up the administrative systems. The second year would be just starting to cover a slightly larger portion, so 55 and over and 18 and under. And then by the third year, everyone is covered. And there's a reason to do that, by the way, to make the transition faster because if you don't, you have to keep the existing system going – and yet, it's it, people are pulling out of that system because they know it's going to end. So healthcare costs would get really unaffordable. So I mm. think you know, really trying to find the right amount of time, and we think two years is the right transition time. And remember, that two thirds of people today are already covered by government healthcare, Medicaid and mm. Medicare. Um, and so we, what we need to do is make sure that we are, um, you know, continuing to. Uh, to think about this transition as as a big transition, of course, but it's not it's not um, it's not something that's just not doable. I mean, when we started Medicare, we had to transition a bunch of people onto Medicare. Um, in this case, obviously the insurance companies, uh, would have a huge transition, and in my bill, we actually do have a fund that is there for a just transition for people who are working in the insurance industry. So, you know that that could be any number of the We don't specify. We just have a uh, an amount of money there, but that would so help. So, who could people. potentially so, lose their jobs? Yeah, yeah who yeah, okay. would potentially lose their jobs? And many of them are much older and almost close to retirement. Mm-hmm. And so, protecting pensions and making sure that people have the opportunity to get other jobs. I mean, there will continue to be a huge healthcare industry because we're covering everybody. So we think there's lots of opportunities for people to be retrained for other
0: positions. Do we have a price tag on this at this point?
1: Well, um, we haven't scored the bill, obviously. Uh, It hasn't been introduced yet. Um, There were some estimates on what it would cost when Bernie Sanders introduced his Medicare for All bill, and ours definitely takes his bill and then makes some additional changes to it. Um, But Uh, again, I would say that, you know, we're already getting payments for Medicaid and Medicare. Mm -hmm. Um, Our bill, uh, you know, we have different options. We haven't proposed one specific option for the pay for. But um, if you think about the fact that employers are paying an enormous amount to cover employees, most of which, by the way, is probably coming out of wages, because you're seeing wages stagnate. Probably a big reason for that is the employer health costs are becoming so high. So most employers would see their costs go down. They would pay some into this into yeah. this new system as well. Yeah, a, the um, standard was like
0: that. They, he wanted to have an employee uh, exactly. payroll payroll tax would cover yeah, that exactly. I mean, yeah. In addition, to other taxes. Uh, what's why is this why single payer over a public option? I mean, we hear you know some candidates now talking about that. I mean, of course, it was around ten years ago during the Affordable Care Act debate. Why not public option? That would give you the opportunity to buy into this program. What's, what's... Well,
1: the problem with a public option is it doesn't transform the system. And, um, you know, of course, it, it takes care of some people. But the biggest problem is if you take the people that need health insurance the most and put them on the public option, um, you end up with a much sicker pool, and uh, you are still not dealing with the fact that there's no cost containment in our system. I mean, they're really, you know, pharmaceutical drugs, the prices, I mean, $125 billion in profits for pharmaceutical companies is absurd. I mean, mm. people can't get medication here and they have to go to Canada or Asia or somewhere else to buy medication. Um, it's just ridiculous. So you're not dealing with cost containment with a public option. Mm-hmm. You're not dealing with the fact that you need a really big, in order to have the most cost-effective system, you need a big pool. And you can't have a pool that's just comprised of the people who need health care the most. You really need to have yeah. everybody in that Very pool. expensive. Yeah, very, very, very expensive. expensive. So that's the problem with the public option.
0: Um, t- calling up Sherrod Brown again. He said, you know, he's, he's on his uh, 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 exploratory committee or whatever people call it. It's so silly. Um, and he said to many Democrats, he thinks it's a choice between, quote, running to our prog- progressive base or talking to working class voters. <laughs> the problem is, I'll let you, this is going to be a big lob for you right here. Okay, all right. The problem is if we choose between the two, we lose swing states. We lose Ohio, we lose New Hampshire, we lose Pennsylvania. We could lose Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin or Florida. So it's pretty clear we need to do both. So if you choose the progressive base, you lose Ohio? What, you know, is, is I, Sher- look,
1: is, I, I like Sherrod Brown. I yeah. cannot understand what he's saying in that um, it, it, because who does he think working people are? Working yeah. people are progressives. And, and look, I'm a proud progressive. I'm the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, the mm-hmm. largest values-based caucus in the House right mm-hmm. now. Um, but I don't think that these ideas are progressive. If you look at the polling around Medicare for All, what you see is that in swing districts, Medicare for all is polling at incredibly high rates. Mm-hmm. Why? Because working people are getting screwed by this health insurance system or lack of health insurance system that we have right now, mm-hmm. and they want they. The, one thing the Affordable Care Act did, and Bernie Sanders did, and the and the movement around the country did, is it really has gotten people to the place where today people do believe healthcare is a right and not a privilege, and um and so that has that that is everywhere. I mean, you look at California, um we're right here in San Francisco. You you look at Orange County and you look at the the Democrats who won in those districts, many of them, almost all of them, I think, ran proudly on Medicare for All. And um, they are supporters Mostly, yeah. of it because yeah. they understand that we need a dramatic transformation of our health care system. We can't just be biting at little edges around the outsides. We're not going to transform health care so that it allows people to actually get healthcare unless we take on this, some of these this special polls, interests. Of course
0: the, that's always uh, people like Medicare for all for in concept but the the price tag once once you introduce a price tag then the the numbers drop. How do you address that and and will you be well, addressing that in your bill?
1: Yeah, I mean the way you address it is you talk about what people are paying right now. Right. I mean the idea that just because you're not paying for it through taxes, and by the way, you know, some many of the proposals that we're talking about are employer taxes or taxes on the wealthiest. I mean, there are lots of ways to pay for that, just basically the third of funding that we would have to come up with. Two thirds already pay for, as I said. So mm-hmm. we've got about a third of it that we have to come up with. And um, people are paying, like this guy I told you about, can you imagine $35,000? You're yeah. already covered by employer health care. So people are paying for it. They're paying for it in terms of death, and sickness and, and, you know, not being able to uh, live, foreclosing on their houses, having their houses foreclosed on sometimes because they can't make their health insurance payments. So they're already paying for it and they're paying for it through their paychecks. I, I really believe that you would see wages start to... Uh, not stagnate in part if, if we were to establish a health care system that doesn't take the money out of wages and put it into health care system. last thing I'll say on this is um, you know I have a lot of Republican small business owners who don't like most of what I, <laughs> what I espouse I come from a district that's I don't know is it more liberal in San Francisco? Yeah, no I'm not it's, sure. it's, I think it's, it's pretty it's right it's up pretty there. liberal yeah um, but uh, they will say to me, look, I don't agree with you on this on this on this, but please pass that Medicare for all bill. These are small business owners really? who are Republicans because they are tired of trying to find and pay for health insurance for a small group of people, which is what happens if right. you're a, you know, small employer. You're you're not one of these huge companies that can make deals with insurance companies and perhaps get a better deal for your employers and a, uh, employees and a better plan. So I think we have a lot of people on our side. They are working people and I don't know what I don't know what Sherrod Brown has eaten for breakfast or had that he is, is sort of separating progressives and working people. Last time I looked, Progressives are working people, and um, there are lots of folks of color. There are lots of low-income people, uh, lots of people who are just struggling to make it every day. And when you only have, you don't even have, you know, five hundred dollars in your bank account to pay for an emergency—that's forty percent of the American population. Mm-hmm. You you can't be paying for health care in the way that we're we're ha- seeing right now.
0: Let's talk about the environment a little bit. Uh, green for all, which is a um, a program that was introduced recently by uh, the uh, freshman, uh, Re- Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that basically get America off fossil fuels in 12 years um, and put people to work, do, making that transition and to be guaranteed federal jobs for people. Now, uh, Kamala Harris uh, has uh, endorsed it, or Elizabeth Warren, Gillibrand, Bernie Sanders, uh, you have endorsed it, but I'm still. But there's really no price tag for this right now. It's still it's sort of a concept. It's not a bill, and there's no price tag on it. And we don't know a lot of the specifics. Tell us about that, because it's hard to yeah. embrace something if we don't we like it. Seems like a nice idea, right. but how much is this going to cost? And and can we realistically make that switch in 12 right. years? That seems yeah, Ambitious. well, I mean, I think <laughs> that
1: you know, I I think the crisis here is climate change, and mm-hmm. and really not leaving our next generation a planet. I mean, it is that urgent, yeah. and all of the reports, including you know, we have one of the scientists in Washington at University of Washington, who wrote a piece of the most recent climate report that says we we really don't have any time right. left. The federal, uh, right, yeah. the federal climate report. That's right, the federal climate report, which you know Donald Trump went on to disavow. But anyway, um, <laughs> that was that's written not, by not, the not, government, that's, but. Not surprising. Um, But I think that this is an urgent crisis that we have to address. And I think what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has done is elevated the issue and the urgency of the issue, which has been there. But we've had so many issues sort of permeating uh, the discussion and the fossil fuel companies are... um, you know, unfortunately, still attached to trying to preserve their profits. Now, some of the fossil fuel companies have put up to a billion dollars into a renewable energy fund. I know, I think it's Shell that has done that, mm-hmm. um, and so they're they're trying to hedge both sides. They're trying to keep their profit for as long as they can, but they know it's not sustainable. I mean, we we simply cannot exist if we continue to take fossil fuels out of the ground. So, Green New Deal is not a new concept in that. Um, there have been a number of bills in Congress. I sponsored one last year in a Republican majority. We were saying 100% renewable energy by 2050. I think that's too far out, and I think we're really talking about something much less than that. But it all is going to be a political endeavor, in the end. And so the the tenets of it are are fairly set. They've been introduced in various different bills. Um, but what Uh, Alexandria has done, Representative Ocasio-Cortez has done, is she's elevated it. And she has made it sort of a, a platform that is all inclusive of the many things that would have to happen. We need to move to a hundred percent electrical grid. I mean that that has to happen. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that we are um, addressing a just transition. Um, and we know in the end, even for our labor friends who are nervous about this because of the jobs that they might be losing, that those jobs that we replace. Um, the ones that we have right now, those need to be good union jobs. They need to, you know, we need to have agreements that allow us to build that grid in a way that really train up and invest in the workers who are going to be managing that grid for the next several generations. So,
0: do you, do you anticipate seeing actual legislation on this before uh, the next round of elections? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think that there's already legislation, as I yeah. said, that yeah. exists in Congress and. Uh, perhaps not one piece of legislation that has absolutely everything in it. Not an it. omnibus type of yeah, thing. Yeah, not it, an it'll omnibus be Just thing. pieces will be coming out. But that's out. not, I mean, this is such a huge issue that it's hard to think about one piece of legislation. The principles that are laid out in the Green New Deal, I think, are the things that are important. Those can be addressed through multiple pieces of legislation. The select committee will be holding hearings around the country, but then the committees of jurisdiction, natural resources, Chairman Grijalva, now a strong progressive, is the chair there. I know he cares Deeply about this issue. He wants to move pieces of legislation there. Um, Energy and commerce, we have to push to make sure that we move legislation there. Um, But there are things we should be doing immediately. We can't wait for one giant piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. We have to be moving on multiple fronts at the same time. And I'm grateful to uh, Representative Ocasio Cortez for for elevating the issue.
0: So we talked about the health care and the environment. And I wanted to get your take as, as a leading progressive in the country. Uh, when you're looking at the 2020 field, what are some minimum requirements you would have, which you would like to see in a 2020 candidate?
1: I, I want to see a 2020 candidate who is bold, who is willing to take on inequality, who is willing to take on the special interests that are stacking the system against working Americans across the country. And that is on numerous levels. We talked about Medicare for all, but college debt is another place. $1.4 trillion in college debt. I'd like that
0: debt-free college. Debt free uh, college. college.
1: Um, you know, there's some really good studies right now from Freedom to Prosper around debt cancellation and what that could do for the economy to actually grow the economy. This is a massive drag on the economy, and it's actually now the lart. Uh, this was maybe a year and a half ago, so I think this is still true. But a year and a half ago, I, I saw some studies that show that the fastest growing demographic of people who are struggling with student debt are grandparents because they're mm-hmm. paying off the loans of their grandkids and they're using their social security and pension funds to pay for that. So that's, I think, a huge issue. But really, there, there are multiple climate change we've talked about. The In the end, we need a system that allows working people to have a voice in our democracy. That means we've got to take on voting rights. It means we've got to make sure we're getting money out of politics. And the candidate that is going to inspire the country is going to be a candidate who is unapologetic about taking on the special interests and about fighting for working people and poor people across the country. You know, three richest Americans today have equivalent wealth to the bottom 50% of Americans. Two of them live in my state. And <laughs> I, it's it's that is that is not mm. the America that I believe in and know is possible. So, so it, we have gotten completely out of whack here. We can't let greed drive things. We can't let money in politics drive things. We need to have a system where everybody has their voice represented and opportunity, real opportunity, the kind of opportunity that I am so grateful for as somebody that came here at 16 years old, an immigrant, nothing in my pocket, and now I get to serve as a member of Congress. That's the America should be available for everybody.
0: The uh, Two years ago, you, you supported Bernie Sanders. Um, are you going to be signing on with him again?
1: Um, I I was so proud to support Bernie. I think I was maybe the first elected official in my state to support Bernie. Um, and uh, I think he just did a tremendous job for moving policies forward. This is a different field. It's a different time. And I'm not running to jump in right away. Um, I still have incredible respect for Bernie. And the thing I like about Bernie the most is he's so consistent. Mm. These are not things that he's embraced just because that's right. where the country is. Decades. He's, he, he, decades. And yeah. he's, you know, he, I mean, you look at his speeches from 20 years ago. He was saying essentially the uh, same thing. Believe me, I've heard, I heard several yeah, Bernie sure speeches. He's always saying the, same, always thing. Saying yes. the <laughs> same thing. He's always saying the same thing. And he's, you know, he's one one of those people who is pushing the envelope on where we should be. And I right. just love that about him. Um, and I've sponsored a number of bills with him. Um, but we do have a, d- a wider field of candidates, and I've never been somebody who thinks we should have the savior identified at the beginning. There is no savior for the Democratic Party mm. or for America. Um, what we need are people who are bold, who are listening, who understand and care about and bring some lived experience of some real sort and who are consistent about their which doesn't mean people can't evolve. I love it when people evolve. I mean, let's bring people in. It's OK. Everyone learns. We right, want that. Right. Um, but we we want people who are not going to back down in the face of powerful interests because that is what we're facing.
0: You think Bernie should run again?
1: I think I mean, look, I think why not? Why not have Bernie run? Why not? I mean, we have a great field right now. Um, I've been, you know, equal opportunity when a candidate says something that I really like. I say, great. Thank you, Kamala Harris, for, you know, for signing on for Medicare for all. Um, And I I think it should be about the ideas and the agenda. And in the end, we got to all unite and fight like hell around whoever the nominee is so that we get Trump out of the White House.
0: Do I uh, give us a little insight? You must be getting sucked up to in many ways from all these candidates. Are they? Have they all pitched you? Like you know, you have got to be on my team right now. No, not, you not know yet. what's funny is I'm,
1: nobody has um, asked me yet to endorse them, uh-huh. and um, I have done. Now, th- what? They've, but they've asked
0: for sit downs, right? Oh yeah, we've been yeah, meeting because a lot of because
1: the thing is, I've it's funny. I've I've actually co-sponsored or led lead-sponsored bills from so many of these candidates. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bernie, you know, my first bill, I think, was College for All that I introduced. That was Bernie's bill in the Senate, now working so closely with them on Medicare for All, on the Yemen War Powers Resolution. Um, with Kamala, uh, one of my first bills also was the Access to Legal Counsel Bill. I'm working very hard with her on the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. I'm introducing that in the in the House. She in the Senate. Um, Cory Booker. I've introduced the uh, Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act, and that and he introduced my Dignity for Detained Immigrants Act in the Senate. Um, and so, Kristen Gillibrand. I've worked on a sexual uh, a forced arbitration around sexual assault um, bill with her. So, I mean, we've. I've got, you know, I've got these, Elizabeth Warren, I introduced her sweeping anti-corruption bill in the House and I've been working very hard on H.R. 1 to include pieces of that into H.R. 1. So I I feel fortunate that um, I've gotten to work with people on issues that really matter. Your endorsement
0: will be very coveted. Do you you get that sense? That's nice of you to say. I I, I don't know. But, you know, I
1: I think that I I do have a slightly different responsibility now as well as the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. So what I will say is the Progressive Caucus is bringing in each of these presidential candidates candidates to talk to our members and to, we will have a questionnaire. We will have a a process that will start. It hasn't, we haven't actually done that yet, but we will.
0: Let's talk judiciary committee. You're also on the judiciary committee. You're in the middle of everything. (laughs) Uh, You, you want impeachment, correct? You would like to start the impeachment? We uh, need
1: to have a debate um, uh, that addresses the constitutional, uh, serious constitutional issues that this president Has brought to us um, through his actions. And I have, when we were in the minority, I voted for articles of impeachment to start Mm -hmm. the debate on impeachment because the Judiciary Committee, the majority on the Judiciary Committee, the Republicans, refused to do anything that we are supposed to do as a committee Mm -hmm. to investigate and have oversight um, over all of these things. They tried to undermine the Mueller investigation. They want to investigate Hillary Clinton's emails for Pete's sake. I mean, so... Now that we have the gavel in judiciary, what we are doing is putting together a very active, uh, proactive agenda around the things we want to pass, like H.R. 1 and gun reform, but we're also putting together a very proactive um, oversight agenda, which is part of our obligation. Mm-hmm. I am not somebody who believes that we should wait you know, that the only thing we're waiting for is the Mueller investigation. I think these two things have to go in parallel tracks. We need to protect the Mueller investigation. We need to get all the information. But frankly, Mueller has been laying out a pretty clear trail for us with these indictments that make it very clear that there is conspiracy there and that that is a crime to defraud the government and and to have foreign governments influence our elections. So we will have that information. We are, you know, we are starting our oversight with Whitaker, with Barr, with uh, a Is number for, of people. The
0: uh, acting Attorney General Whitaker, uh, the uh, potential future Attorney General uh, at, at William Barr.
1: Correct. So that will all lead us down a path. And we need to get that information. We need to see what it says. Um, but we cannot allow somebody, if that information comes back and shows, uh, you know, continues to show what we think we're seeing right now which is violations of the Emoluments Clause, constitutional violations, then we cannot as a country allow somebody to continue to serve in office that has violated the Constitution.
0: What do you say? The, the boss doesn't like this. Pelosi said, hey, ease up on, on, on impeachment. This is not helping us. Wait until We're, there's time. What, what do you say to her?
1: Well, we're in the same place. She and I are in the same place in that um, I don't think she's saying ease up on impeachment. What she's saying and what I've said and what Chairman Nadler has said is let's get all the information. Let's Let's look at this. I mean, in the end, impeachment has to be a political process because you've got to get a certain number of votes. And it can't just be Democrats. And so we know that we have to get the information, find out what's there. And then if we think it rises to the level of of constitutional violations and impeachment, then we need to lay out the case for the American people. But this, is, this has been hidden. It has been swept under the rug. It has been undermined by this president and this Republican Party. And it's a sad day in America that it isn't a bipartisan effort to make sure that the Constitution is
0: upheld. Do, do you worry about getting ahead of the American people? I've talked with Adam Schiff on this very podcast about this, and he said, um, you know, we, we have to build a, an inside case, and we have to build an outside case yeah. to the American people. If we're see, we Democrats, are seen as coming to a conclusion before the facts of the case bear that out, then people will say, well, you know, the, the, the people in the middle— yeah, we'll say. Well, wait. I don't trust you guys. You already knew what the conclusion was. Absolutely. how do you how do you guard against that?
1: Well, I mean, I think it is about these hearings, right? I mean, it, we're we're talking about this as if it's the same today as it was two years ago. Mueller has indicted uh, almost every. I mean, almost every senior campaign official in the Trump campaign, right? Um, Many. Uh, yes. Yes. And and is it over a hundred uh, indictments? Um, you know, at least seven top campaign of Trump campaign officials with guilty pleas. I mean, these are serious things that this investigation that continues to be called a witch hunt by Republicans and by Trump, this has all been laid out. So the case has been uh, partially laid out, but Adam Schiff is correct just as as Pelosi is, just as Chairman Nadler and I have said that we have to get the information. And um, it is very difficult, though, to look at everything that has been laid out and not see that everybody around him is, uh, you know, many people around him are pleading guilty to crimes that are serious, serious violations of our Constitution. Mm -hmm. So we're going to continue to lay out that case. And I don't think there's any disagreement about this. But I also don't think that we are in a place where we can just ignore this or say that oh we're going to just wait and twenty even if something comes out you know that is that clearly rises to the level of impeachment. Some people think it's already there. Many people don't haven't seen that because Republicans haven't allowed us to. Um, we can't just leave this to the electorate. Congress has an obligation. It is what we swore our oath to to uphold the Constitution. We cannot allow somebody who is defrauding the American people, if that is what is clear out of all of our investigations, um, who is, is deliberately undermining the Constitution. That does great harm to the country in the long run. And so we have to take
0: that on. Let's, uh, let's look internationally at uh, the nation's borders. You are a longtime immigration rights advocate. Uh, you you traveled to Central America with the immigrant caravan. You were one of the first people at the, at, at, to go to the um, uh, the nation's southern border to talk to immigrants, people being detained, and such. The other day, uh, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, said enhanced fencing, quote unquote, we're getting to, we're going to get into the semantical jungle here, Congresswoman, So I'm actually, uh, <laughs> stick with us. Um, is a reasonable ask, uh, he said, as part of the discussion, and he said, you know. There might be a compromise that isn't supported. You know, this we're talking about the, the negotiations right now about what to do about border security, the wall, fence, what have you. And he says it might not be agreed to by the majority of the caucus. And he said the Democrats, quote, have discussed proceeding in a strongly bipartisan way. Uh, are you OK with what he's saying there or –
1: well, I can't. I can't quite tell exactly what, what he's trying to say there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I if think we want. Mo- mo- we for... want to preserve space for negotiation and yeah. for discussion. However. Let me just be clear that the only crisis at the border is the one the president has created, Mm -hmm. a humanitarian crisis where he has essentially banned asylum seekers, he has ripped children away from their parents, he has continued to jail people when they should not be jailed, he has tried to make asylum uh, illegal um, in violation of our, our own constitution and in violation of human rights treaties that we are signatories to. That is the crisis at the border. I don't think the Democrats should buy into the idea that the border is not secure, that Democrats haven't uh, consistently made sure that we are putting money into border security. Let me just remind, I'm I'm sure you know this and your listeners probably know this, but in 2013, when the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill was passed with 68 bipartisan votes in the Senate, John Boehner refused to bring it to the House floor for a vote. It would have passed. Mm -hmm. That bill- had $40 billion of border security over 10 years in exchange for comprehensive reform, a permanent path to legalization and citizenship for the 11 million, fixing the family-based immigration system, fixing the employment-based immigration system, a system that has not been updated or fixed in decades um, and desperately needs to for the future of our country. That amount of money has already been spent at the border, almost. We've almost gotten to $40 billion that has already been spent at the border with no underlying reform. The best way to secure our country and ensure human rights protections is to pass comprehensive immigration reform, mm-hmm. not to keep pouring money into the border. Now, you could take some of the money we've put and put it towards things like new technologies car screening technologies um drug interdiction you know fund the coast guard to inter- because that's where most of the drug interdiction happens mm-hmm. um there are lots of things that can be that money can be repurposed so that it actually protects people and protects our values
0: did if there is money in this deal that comes to you for quote unquote fencing um
1: Are progressives okay
0: with that? No,
1: I don't think so. I mean, uh, let me just quote Nancy Pelosi, who has been so strong and so good on this issue. She said, have I not been clear? I think I've been very clear. She has consistently said this. Now, I understand that we're trying to preserve some space for negotiation, but I think our caucus leadership needs to understand that progressives, um, and including our border reps, people like Veronica Escobar, people who are right on the border and seeing their communities ripped apart, that they believe the border is already secure in the sense of, you know, a a wall is not going to do anything. Let's just be very clear about a wall is, what a wall is. A wall is a campaign promise that Donald Trump made, along with the fact that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. I mean, let's run that video multiple times. That that ain't coming. (laughs) And, And it is not something that actually... Uh, is in the interests of this country. So let's not let the discussion be driven by him. He doesn't know he's just he's just playing to a vanity wall to his base. Mm-hmm. Um, But let's really talk about what strengthens the country. Let's reallocate some of the funds that we already have. Let's pass comprehensive immigration reform. Probably not something this president and Stephen Miller will ever allow to happen under their watch, which is why we need to focus on 2020 and get somebody in who's going to have the courage to do what needs to be done and actually allow immigrants to stay here and not live in the shadows.
0: You you also... uh, uh About a year or so ago, you wanted to abolish ICE, and that's the uh, the Federal Immigration Agency, and transfer its functions to other places. You got a lot of blowback for that, as did other Democrats uh, who support it. Um, What's the what's the? Are you still there? And what's the value of that? Explain what that means, because it's become such a a slogan and an attack, certainly in the midterm ads. And then part of that seemed like, well, if you're just uh, abolishing it and dist- redistributing its functions, it seems like a, a rebranding effort, a <laughs> reorg. Yeah. Yeah. What is, what, when you say abolish ICE, what yeah. does that mean to
1: Thank you, you for the question, because right. um, this goes to my 15 years of working on this issue mm-hmm. and seeing the outrageous abuses and lack of accountability within the current immigration and customs enforcement system. Because as we have poured more and more billions of dollars into immigration enforcement, inhumane Uh, nonsensical immigration enforcement we have literally uh you know allowed people to die in detention we've shackled pregnant women uh we have no standards in our detention systems because the vast majority of immigration prisons that's what they are Mm -hmm. are run by private prison contractors Um, And so what we need to do, there was immigration enforcement before ICE was created as an agency. There will be after ICE is created. But we have to stop pouring billions of dollars into a system that has zero accountability, zero transparency, and, and acts for the benefit of these private prison contractors. That is unacceptable. And um, our bill had a, a number of whereas clauses that pointed out all the GAO reports, the Government Accountability mm-hmm, Office mm-hmm. reports, the Inspector General reports. That nonpartisan said nonpartisan, nonpartisan reports, reports that said this is an agency that is a rogue agency. It's spending its money in ways that are not uh, accountable to the mm-hmm. taxpayer and uh, not in, not consistent with our values. And that was the beginning part of the bill. The second part of the bill was a commission to look at exactly how we establish uh, a, a more accountable immigration enforcement system. And the third part was to get rid of the current system that we have, which which is, uh, you know, deeply dysfunctional. You, and, violates. And, and, and
0: you do believe that there should be a, a border agency of some sort? Yes, know, of course. Of course. Yeah, we okay.
1: believe that there should be border security. We, I mean, it's, it's just a trope that people throw out there because, yes. you know, the private prison contractors gave so much money to the Trump campaign and to Republicans. And as we've decriminalized um, some of the system, you know, around drugs, for example, and we've put fewer and fewer people into prisons, these prison Profit, for-profit contractors need need money. So we are spending so much money on this for-profit prison system now for detention, as well as, you know, the original criminal justice system that people are finally realizing, wait, that doesn't make sense. Well, now they're pouring that money into for-profit immigration prisons.
0: One other thing that you you're just uh, had an announcement on uh, just as uh, yesterday as the Mac, when we're recording this is Yemen. You alluded to this earlier. Yeah. Um there's an incredible crisis that's going on over there that is really underreported. Uh, there's a, the U.S. has been involved in a, in a war over there. They're backing the Saudis against the Yemeni rebels. Um, 14 million people on the brink of starvation. You have 85 children have died. Explain what you did uh, called for this week that could get some bi- – that has bipartisan support that would uh, curtail the U.S., Involvement in that in that uh, war.
1: Yes, this is. uh, I don't. It's hard to sleep when you look at what's been happening in Yemen. The Saudi-backed. Uh, killings and um, the United States' role in, in that process. And so the War Powers Resolution that we just introduced is bipartisan, bicameral. Um, we will, I think, bring it to the floor of the House in early February. The Progressive Caucus has been out front in pushing for this. Ro Khanna has really led the work here uh, in the Bay Area, he, Congress, he, yeah, Congressman, Congressman yes. Kanna has led the work on the House side um, and uh, Bernie Sanders, but also Mike Lee and Chris Murphy on the Senate side. Um, this resolution was, is is really about the fact that we cannot go to war without congressional approval mm-hmm. and that we have been at war. Let's be very clear. We have been at war in Yemen. And because of that, Children are dying, millions of people are dying, and we need to take our authority, our constitutional authority, back around war. Um, And so this resolution will make an enormous difference. I think it will allow for um, the United States to uh, allow for us to put a check on this president, obviously, um, but also will bring a new discussion around peace to that region and take the United States. Uh, At least we'll have the discussion. Now, you know, I think it was Mike Lee who said, look... Mike Lee, a a Republican Republican senator from Utah. From Utah, who has been fantastic on this issue, and very clearly said, Congress cannot cede its authority around the war. And in my remarks, I talked about the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. and what Robert Kennedy said, where he sort of said, we don't have troops on the ground. But Mike Lee very clearly in his remarks said, you know, if we are providing support for airstrikes, if we're to the Saudi government... If we're providing all kinds of uh, assistance for this to happen, that is still being at war, whether or not we have troops on the ground. So Mm -hmm. um, I think he he did a terrific job and he, he actually made a... Uh, he made an analogy to a bank robbery and people who aid and abet in a bank robbery, and how they mm. are still complicit in that. And he it was very clear. He said, "Look, I'm not, I'm not directly comparing these, but I think that that is an important. It's a, an important bipartisan reassertion of congressional authority around declaration of war, um, and and what the United States should or should not be doing without that."
0: And I want to ask you one last question who I, about someone who I, I believe is a constituent of yours uh-huh. who is also exploring a run for president. Howard Charles, <laughs> is, he, is he one of your constituents? or uh,
1: I believe he is, though. I'm not sure. He might live in Medina. He might live okay. just outside oh, just of my district. Oh, just yeah, but certainly district, yes. many of the Starbucks employees it's, are constituents of mine, yes. and, and we are the proud beginning. The district is the proud beginning of Starbucks. Yes. I've been to that old school to Starbucks. The Actually, Pike, I like that Starbucks. It's, um, Starbucks. It's um, one of the best ones. I
0: Proudly hold my Pete's mug here. That's yes, not, that's no, not you know, listen, I, I, I love <laughs> Pete's. <laughs> all right, but, but, but on to Howard. Um, now, he said there's a place uh, with all this polarization in Washington for a middle of the road politician. Uh, he said he's, you know, grew up in the projects in Brooklyn. He describes himself as a self made guy. Um, is he the right guy for the job or is he just going to hand this election to Trump? If any, he gets in. Any,
1: anybody can run. Anybody yes. should run. I believe that. Um, however, what Howard Schultz is doing is using his billions of dollars to essentially buy himself and a place as an independent. We, you know, we can debate about whether we should have a multi-party system in yeah. this country. But right now, you know, and I know that we have a two-party system. And independents, um, you know, do run. And maybe there's an independent. Out there that is the right person for the job, but Howard Schultz running as an independent is only going to happen because he's using his billions of dollars to do that. And you've got to look at his policy platform and what he is running on. And I think he will hand this election to Trump if he runs. I think he is. I'm. I'm. I'm distressed to say this because Starbucks has been an important employer in my district. Mm -hmm. Um, I said he should stick to coffee, and uh, you know that got (laughs) that got quite a bit of attention. But here's the thing. I I really have. Trouble. This is Howard Schultz has not voted in a number of elections. He has mm. not been involved in government. Um, the the way to get a billionaire who has no experience running government and is destroying our country out of the White House is not to run another billionaire who also has no experience with government. Um, and and I really chafe at some of the things that he has said. I hope he takes them back. I hope he if like, he decides like what? What are you to. Well, he about? he said that it's un-American. Um to, to support Medicare for all. Yeah. Um, then he backed it off and he said it's unaffordable. Here's the thing. what is I, I, I And I tweeted this this morning. I said, I'm really having trouble with billionaires who opine about what is affordable and unaffordable. You know, it is un-American. I agree with him that it's un-American. What's un-American is that we don't have health care for every person in this country. Easy for him to say it's unaffordable when what it means is that maybe he would give up just a tiny bit of his wealth so that we would be able to afford to provide health care for everyone. I think think it's un-American that we have the three richest people in the country owning the same wealth as the bottom 50%. Um, these are not radical ideas. They're not crazy. He shouldn't make them seem that way. He's mm-hmm. done some good things in Seattle. Um, he could run, but he should not run and use his billions to run on a path that will be deeply detrimental to this country at such a serious point in in our history. And, and you, it is and people of color, young people, working people across the country who will be um, who will be most burdened if he takes votes away from Democrats and he allows Trump to stay in office. And you think that would happen?
0: If, if I do were, think that yeah, would happen. Yeah. yeah.
1: Which is why Trump, of course, is, is egging him yes, on. come on in, he, come he, he on in. Please. He doesn't have the courage to run. You know, he's, he's trying yes. to act the way that, that he would respond to yeah. Fox News. If Fox News says Trump doesn't have the courage to actually have a deal so that he doesn't shut down the government and put 800,000 people hostage, then Trump responds immediately and says, we got to build that wall and I'm going to shut down the government. Well, hopefully Howard Schultz doesn't respond the same way to Trump's uh, uh, tweets.
0: Congresswoman, Thank you so much for being on it. It's all political. Thank we appreciate you so
1: much it. for okay. having me.
0: I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Congresswoman Jayapal for being here. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you're super progressive or a Starbucks CEO, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor in chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at SanFranciscoChronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.